Witches Abroad by Terry Pratchett. Read by Nigel Planer. This is the Discworld, which travels through space on the back of four elephants, which themselves stand on the shell of Great Artuin, the Sky Turtle. Once upon a time, such a universe was considered unusual and possibly impossible. But then it used to be so simple, once upon a time. Because the universe was full of ignorance all around, and the scientist panned through it like a prospector crouched over a mountain stream, looking for the gold of knowledge among the gravel of unreason, the sand of uncertainty, and the little whiskery eight-legged swimming things of superstition. Occasionally, he would straighten up and say things like, Hurrah! I've discovered Boyle's third law. And everyone knew where they stood. But the trouble was that ignorance became more interesting. Especially big, fascinating ignorance about huge and important things like matter and creation. And people stopped patiently building their little houses of rational sticks in the chaos of the universe and started getting interested in the chaos itself. Partly because it was a lot easier to be an expert on chaos, but mostly because it made really good patterns that you could put on a T-shirt. And instead of getting on with proper science, like finding that bloody butterfly whose flapping wings cause all these storms we've been having lately and getting it to stop, scientists suddenly went around saying how impossible it was to know anything, and that there wasn't really anything you could call reality to know anything about, and how all this was tremendously exciting. And incidentally, did you know there were possibly all these little universes all over the place, but no one can see them because they're all curved in on themselves? Incidentally, don't you think this is a rather good T-shirt? Compared to all this, a large turtle with a world on its back is practically mundane. At least it doesn't pretend it doesn't exist. And no one on the Discworld ever tried to prove it didn't exist in case they turned out to be right and found themselves suddenly floating in empty space. This is because the Discworld exists right on the edge of reality. The least little things can break through to the other side. So on the Discworld, people take things seriously. Like stories. Because stories are important. People think that stories are shaped by people. In fact, it's the other way round. Stories exist independently of their players. If you know that, the knowledge is power. Stories, great flapping ribbons of shaped space-time, have been blowing and uncoiling around the universe since the beginning of time. And they have evolved. The weakest have died, and the strongest have survived, and they have grown fat on the retelling. Stories twisting and blowing through the darkness. And their very existence overlays a faint but insistent pattern on the chaos that is history. Stories etch grooves deep enough for people to follow in the same way that water follows certain paths down a mountainside. And every time fresh actors tread the paths of the story, the groove runs deeper. This is called the theory of narrative causality, and it means that a story, once started, 
takes a shape. It picks up all the vibrations of all the other workings of that story that have ever been. This is why history keeps on repeating all the time. So a thousand heroes have stolen fire from the gods. A thousand wolves have eaten a grandmother. A thousand princesses have been kissed. A million unknowing actors have moved unknowing through the pathways of story. It is now impossible for the third and youngest son of any king, if he should embark on a quest which has so far claimed his older brothers, not to succeed. Stories don't care who takes part in them. All that matters is that the story gets told, that the story repeats. Or, if you prefer to think of it like this, stories are a parasitical life-form, warping lives in the service only of the story itself. And people are wrong about urban myths. Logic and reason say that these are fictional creations retold again and again by people who are hungry for evidence of weird coincidence, natural justice and so on. They aren't. They keep on happening all the time, everywhere, as the stories bounce back and forth across the universe. At any one time, hundreds of dead grandmothers are being whisked away on the roof racks of stolen cars, and loyal Alsatians are choking on the fingers of midnight burglars. And they're not confined to any one world. Hundreds of female Mercurian jivputs turn four tiny eyes on their rescuers and say, My brood husband will be livid. It was his travel module. Urban myths are alive. It takes a special kind of person to fight back and become the bicarbonate of history. Once upon a time, grey hands gripped the hammer and swung it, striking the post so hard that it sank a foot into the soft earth. Two more blows and it was fixed immovably. From the trees around the clearing, the snakes and birds watched silently. In the swamp, the alligators drifted like patches of badass water. Grey hands took up the crosspiece and fixed it in place, tying it with creepers, pulling them so tight that they creaked. She watched him, and then she took up a fragment of mirror and tied it to the top of the post. The coat, she said. He took up the coat and fitted it over the crosspiece. The pole wasn't long enough so that the last few inches of sleeve draped emptily. And the hat, she said. It was tall and round and black. It glistened. The piece of mirror gleamed between the darkness of the hat and the coat. Uh, will it work? he said. Yes, she said. Even mirrors have their reflection. We got to fight mirrors with mirrors. She glared up through the trees to a slim white tower in the distance. We've got to find her reflection. It'll have to reach out a long way, then. Yes, we need all the help we can get. She looked around the clearing. She had called upon Mr. Safeway, Lady Bon Anna, Hotter Andrews, and Stridewide Man. They probably weren't very good gods, but they were the best she'd been able to make. This is a story about stories, or what it really means to be a fairy godmother. But it's also particularly about reflections and mirrors. All across the multiverse there are backward tribes, considered backward, that is, by people who wear more clothes than they do, who distrust mirrors and images because they say they steal a bit of a person's soul and there's only so much of a person to go round. And the people who wear more clothes say this is just superstition, 
despite the fact that other people who spend their lives appearing in images of one sort or another seem to develop a thin quality. It's put down to overwork and, tellingly, overexposure instead. Just a superstition. But a superstition doesn't have to be wrong. A mirror can suck up a piece of soul. A mirror can contain the reflection of the whole universe, a whole sky full of stars in a piece of silvered glass no thicker than a breath. Know about mirrors, and you nearly know everything. Look into the mirror further, to an orange light on a cold mountain top, thousands of miles from the vegetable warmth of that swamp. Local people called it the Bear Mountain. This was because it was a bear mountain, not because it had a lot of bears on it. This caused a certain amount of profitable confusion, though. People often strode into the nearest village with heavy-duty crossbows, traps and nets, and called haughtily for native guides to lead them to the bears. Since everyone locally was making quite a good living out of this, what with the sale of guidebooks, maps of bear caves, ornamental cuckoo clocks with bears on them, bear walking sticks and cakes baked in the shape of a bear, somehow no one had time to go and correct the spelling. Bad spelling can be lethal. For example, the greedy serif of Al-Ibi was once cursed by a badly educated deity and for some days everything he touched turned to Glod, which happened to be the name of a small dwarf from a mountain community hundreds of miles away who found himself magically dragged to the kingdom and relentlessly duplicated. Some 2,000 Glods later, the spell wore off. These days, the people of Al-Ibi are renowned for being unusually short and bad-tempered. It was about as bare as a mountain could be. Most of the trees gave out about halfway to the top, only a few pines hanging on to give an effect very similar to the couple of pathetic strands teased across his scalp by a baldy who won't own up. It was a place where witches met. Tonight, a fire gleamed on the very crest of the hill. Dark figures moved in the flickering light. The moon coasted across a lacework of clouds. Finally, a tall, pointy-hatted figure said, You mean everyone brought potato salad? There was one ram-top witch who was not attending the Sabbath. Witches like a night out as much as anyone else, but in this case she had a more pressing appointment, and it wasn't the kind of appointment you can put off easily. Desiderata Hollow was making her will. When Desiderata Hollow was a girl, her grandmother had given her four important pieces of advice to guide her young footsteps on the unexpectedly twisting pathway of life. They were, never trust a dog with orange eyebrows, always get the young man's name and address, never get between two mirrors, and always wear completely clean underwear every day because you never know when you're going to be knocked down and killed by a runaway horse, and if people found you had unsatisfactory underwear on, you'd die of shame. And then Desiderata grew up to become a witch, and one of the minor benefits of being a witch is that you know exactly when you're going to die and can wear what underwear you like, which explains a lot about witches. That had been eighty years earlier, when the idea of knowing exactly when you were going to die had seemed quite attractive, because secretly, of course, you knew you were going to live forever. That was then. And this was now. Forever didn't seem to last as long these days as it once did. Another log crumbled to ash in the fireplace. Desiderata hadn't bothered to order any fuel for the winter. Not much point, really. And then, of course, there was this other thing. 
She'd wrapped it up carefully into a long, slim package. Now she folded up the letter, addressed it, and pushed it under the string. Job done. She looked up. Desiderata had been blind for thirty years, but this hadn't been a problem. She'd always been blessed, if that was the word, with second sight. So when the ordinary eyes gave out, you just trained yourself to see into the present, which anyway was easier than the future. And since the eyeball of the occult didn't depend on light, you saved on candles. There was always a silver lining if you knew where to look, in a manner of speaking. There was a mirror on the wall in front of her. The face in it was not her own, which was round and pink. It was the face of a woman who was used to giving orders. Desiderata wasn't the sort to give orders, quite the reverse, in fact. The woman said, You are dying, Desiderata. I am that too. You've grown old. Your sort always do. Your power is nearly gone. That's a fact, Lilith, said Desiderata mildly. So your protection is withdrawing from her. Afraid so, said Desiderata. So now it's just me and the evil swamp woman, and I will win. That's how it seems, I'm afraid. You should have found a successor. Never had the time. I'm not the planning sort, you know. The face in the mirror got closer, as if the figure had moved a little nearer to its side of the mirror. You've lost... Desiderata Hollow. So it goes. Desiderata got to her feet a little unsteadily and picked up a cloth. The figure seemed to be getting angry. It clearly felt that people who had lost ought to look downcast and not as if they were enjoying a joke at your expense. Don't you understand what losing means? Some people are very clear about that, said Desiderata. Goodbye, my lady. She hung the cloth over the mirror. There was an angry intake of breath, and then silence. Desiderata stood as if lost in thought. Then she raised her head and said, Kettle boiled just now. Would you like a cup of tea? No, thank you, said a voice right behind her. How long have you been waiting? Forever. Not keeping you, am I? It's a quiet night. I'm making a cup of tea. I think there's one biscuit left. No, thank you. If you feel peckish, it's in the jar on the mantelpiece. That's genuine Clatchian pottery, you know, made by a genuine Clatchian craftsman. From Clatch, she added. Indeed. I used to get about a lot in my younger days. Yes. Great times. Desiderata poked the fire. It was the job, you see. Of course, I expect it's very much the same for you. Yes. I never knew when I was going to be called out. Well, of course, you'd know about that, wouldn't you? Kitchens, mainly. It always seemed to be kitchens. Balls, sometimes, but generally it was kitchens. She picked up the kettle and poured the boiling water into the teapot on the hearth. Indeed. I used to grant their wishes. Death looked puzzled. What? You mean like 
Fitted cupboards? New sinks? That kind of thing? No, no, the people. Desiderata sighed. It's a big responsibility, fairy godmothering. Knowing when to stop, I mean. People whose wishes get granted often don't turn out to be very nice people. So should you give them what they want or what they need? Death nodded politely. From his point of view, people got what they were given. Like this genua thing, Desiderata began. Death looked up sharply. Genua? You know it? Well, oh, of course you would. I know everywhere, of course. Desiderata's expression softened. Her inner eyes were looking elsewhere. There were two of us. Godmothers go in twos, you know. Me and Lady Lilith. There's a lot of power in godmothering. It's like being part of history. Anyway, the girl was born out of wedlock, but none the worse for that. It wasn't as if they couldn't have married, but they just never got round to it. And Lilith wished for her to have beauty and power and marry a prince. <laughs> and she's been working on that ever since. What could I do? You can't argue with wishes like that. Lilith knows the power of a story. I've done the best I could, but Lilith's got the power. I hear she runs the city now, changing the whole country just to make a story work. And now it's too late anyway, for me. So, I'm handing on the responsibility. That's how it goes with fairy godmothering. No one ever wants to be a fairy godmother, except Lilith, of course. Got a bee in her bonnet about it. So I'm sending someone else. I may have left things too late. Desiderata was a kindly soul. Fairy godmothers develop a very deep understanding about human nature, which makes the good ones kind and the bad ones powerful. She was not someone to use extreme language, but it was possible to be sure that when she deployed a mild term like a bee in her bonnet, she was using it to define someone whom she believed to be several miles over the madness horizon and accelerating. She poured out the tea. That's the trouble with second sight, she said. You can see what's happening, but you don't know what it means. I've seen the future. There's a coach made out of a pumpkin, and that's impossible. And there's coachmen made out of mice, which is unlikely. And there's a clock striking midnight, and, and something about a glass slipper. And it's all going to happen, because that's how stories have to work. And then I thought, I know some people who make stories work their way. She sighed again. Wish I was going to Genua, she said. I could do with the warmth. And it's Fat Tuesday coming up. Always went to Genua for Fat Tuesday in the old days. There was an expectant silence. Then Death said, You surely are not asking me to grant a wish? <laughs> No one grants a fairy godmother's wishes. Desiderata had that inward look again, her voice talking to herself. See, I've got to get the three of them to Genua. Got to get them there because I've seen them there. 
Got to be all three. And that ain't easy with people like them. Got to use headology. Got to make them send themselves. Tell Esme Weatherwax she's got to go somewhere and she won't go out of contrariness. So tell her she's not to go and she'll run there over broken glass. That's the thing about the Weatherwaxes, see? They don't know how to be beaten. Something seemed to strike her as funny. But one of them's gonna have to learn. Death said nothing. From where he sat, Desiderata reflected, losing was something that everyone learned. She drained her tea. Then she stood up, put on her pointy hat with a certain amount of ceremony, and hobbled out of the back door. There was a deep trench dug under the trees a little way from the house, down into which someone had thoughtfully put a short ladder. She climbed in, and with some difficulty heaved the ladder onto the leaves. Then she lay down. She sat up. Mr. Chert, the troll down at the sawmill, does a very good deal on coffins, if you don't mind, Pine. I shall definitely bear it in mind. I got Herker the poacher to dig the hole out for me, she said conversationally, and he's going to come along and fill it in on his way home. I believe in being neat. Take it away, maestro. What? Oh, a figure of speech. He raised his scythe. Desiderata Hollow went to her rest. Well, she said, that was easy. What happens now? And this is Genua, the magical kingdom, the diamond city, the fortunate country. In the centre of the city, a woman stood between two mirrors, watching herself reflected all the way to infinity. The mirrors were themselves in the centre of an octagon of mirrors, open to the sky on the highest tower of the palace. There were so many reflections, in fact, that it was only with extreme difficulty that you could tell where the mirrors ended and the real person began. Her name was Lady Lilith de Temskiri, although she had answered to many others in the course of a long and eventful life. And that was something you learned to do early on, she'd found. If you wanted to get anywhere in this world, and she'd decided right at the start that she wanted to get as far as it was possible to go, you wore names lightly, and you took power anywhere you found it. She had buried three husbands, and at least two of them had been already dead. And you moved around a lot, because most people didn't move around much. Change countries and your name, and if you had the right manner, the world was your mollusk. For example, she'd had to go a mere hundred miles to become a lady. She'd go to any lengths now. The two main mirrors were set almost, but not quite, facing one another, so that Lilith could see over her shoulder and watch her images curve away around the universe inside the mirror. She could feel herself pouring into herself, multiplying itself via the endless reflections. When Lilith sighed and strode out from the space between the mirrors, the effect was startling. Images of Lilith hung in the air behind her for a moment like three-dimensional shadows before fading. So... Desiderata was dying, interfering old baggage. She deserved death. She'd never understood the kind of power she'd had. She was one of those people afraid to do good for fear of doing harm, who took it all so seriously that they'd constipate themselves with moral anguish before granting the wish of a single ant. Lilith looked down and out over the city. 
Well, there were no barriers now. The stupid voodoo woman in the swamp was a mere distraction with no understanding. Nothing stood in the way of what Lilith liked more than anything else. A happy ending. Up on the mountain, the Sabbat had settled down a bit. Artists and writers have always had a rather exaggerated idea about what goes on at a witch's Sabbat. This comes from spending too much time in small rooms with the curtains drawn, instead of getting out in the healthy fresh air. For example, there's the dancing around naked. In the average temperate climate, there are very few nights when anyone would dance around at midnight with no clothes on, quite apart from the question of stones, thistles and sudden hedgehogs. Then there's all that business with the goat-headed gods. Most witches don't believe in gods. They know that the gods exist, of course. They even deal with them occasionally. But they don't believe in them. They know them too well. It would be like believing in the postman. And there's the food and drink, the bits of reptile and so on. In fact, witches don't go for that sort of thing. The worst you can say about the eating habits of the older type of witch is that they tend to like ginger biscuits dipped in tea with so much sugar in it that the spoon won't move and will drink it out of the saucer if they think it's too hot and do so with appreciative noises more generally associated with the cheaper type of plumbing system. Legs of toad and so on might be better than this. Then there's the mystic ointments. By sheer luck, the artists and writers are on firmer ground here. Most witches are elderly, which is when ointments start to have an attraction. And at least two of those present tonight were wearing Granny Weatherwax's famous goose grease and sage chest liniment. This didn't make you fly and see visions, but it did prevent colds. If only because the distressing smell that developed around about the second week kept everyone else so far away you couldn't catch anything from them. And finally, there's sabbats themselves. Your average witch is not by nature a social animal as far as other witches are concerned. There's a conflict of dominant personalities. There's a group of ringleaders without a ring. There's the basic unwritten rule of witchcraft, which is, don't do what you will, do what I say. The natural size of a coven is one. Witches only get together when they can't avoid it. Like now. The conversation, given Desiderata's absence, had naturally turned to the increasing shortage of witches. Desiderata had sent a note via old mother Dismas, asking to be excused on account of being dead. Second sight enables you to keep a very tight rein on your social engagements. What, no one? said Granny Weatherwax. No one, said Gamma Brevis. I call that terrible, said Granny. That's disgusting. Eh? said old mother Dismas. She calls it disgusting, shouted Gamma Brevis. Eh? There's no girl to put forward to take Desiderata's place. Oh! The implications of this sank in. If anyone doesn't want their crusts, I'll have them, said Nanny Og. We never had this sort of thing in my young days, said Granny. There was a dozen witches this side of the mountain alone. Of course, that was before all this, she made a face, making your own entertainment. There's far too much of this making your own entertainment these days. We never made our own entertainment when I was a girl. We never had time. Tempers foggy, said Nanny Og. What? Tempers foggy. 
means that was then and this is now, said Nanny. I don't need no one to tell me that, Githa Og. I know when now is. You've got to move with the times. I don't see why. I don't see why we... So I reckon we've got to shift the boundaries again, said Gamma Brevis. Can't do that, said Granny Weatherwax promptly. I'm doing four villages already. The broomsticks hardly had time to cool down. Well, with Mother Hollow passing on, we're definitely short-handed, said Gamma Brevis. I know she didn't do a lot, what with her other work, but she was there. That's what it's all about, being there. There's got to be a local witch. The four witches stared gloomily at the fire. Well, three of them did. Nanny Og, who tended to look on the cheerful side, made toast. They've got a wizard in... "'Down in Creel Springs,' said Gamma Brevis. "'There wasn't anyone to take over when old Granny Hopfliss passed on, "'so they sent off to Ark Pork for a wizard. "'An actual wizard. "'With a staff. "'He's got a shop there and everything with a brass sign on the door. "'It says, Wizard.' "'The witches sighed. "'Mrs. Singe passed on,' said Gamma Brevis. "'And Gamma Peavy passed on.' "'Did she? Old Mabel Peavy,' said Nanny Og, through a shower of crumbs. "'How old was she?' "'One hundred and nineteen,' said Gamma Brevis. "'I said to her, you don't want to go climbing mountains at your age.' "'But she wouldn't listen.' "'Some people are like that,' said Granny. "'Stubborn as mules. Tell them they mustn't do something, and they won't stop till they've tried it.' "'I actually heard her very last words,' said Gamma. "'What did she say?' said Granny. "'As I recall, oh, bugger,' said Gamma. "'It's the way she would have wanted to go,' said Nanny Og. "'The other witches nodded. "'You know, we could be looking at the end of witchcraft in these parts,' said Gamma Brevis. "'They stared at the fire again. "'I don't expect anybody's brought any marshmallows,' said Nanny Og, hopefully. "'Granny Weatherwax looked at her sister witches.' Gamma Brevis she couldn't stand. The old woman taught school on the other side of the mountain and had a nasty habit of being reasonable when provoked. And old mother Dismas was possibly the most useless sibyl in the history of oracular revelation. And Granny really couldn't be having at all with Nanny Og, who was her best friend. What about young Magrat? said old mother Dismas innocently. Her patch runs right alongside Desideratus. Maybe she could take on a bit extra? Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og exchanged glances. She's gone funny in the head, said Granny. Now, come on, Esme, said Nanny Og. Well, I call it funny, said Granny. You can't tell me that saying all that stuff about relatives isn't going funny in the head. Mm, she didn't say that. Said Nanny, she said she wanted to relate to herself. That's what I said, said Granny Weatherwax. I told her, simplicity garlic was your mother, araminta garlic was your granny, Yolanda garlic is your aunt, and you're, your, well, you're, 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 you're me. She sat back with the satisfied look of someone who has solved everything anyone could ever want to know about a personal identity crisis. She wouldn't listen, she added. Gamma Brevis wrinkled her forehead. 
Magrat, she said. She tried to get a mental picture of the Ramtop's youngest witch and recalled, well, not a face, just a slightly watery-eyed expression of hopeless goodwill wedged between a body like a maypole and hair like a haystack after a gale. A relentless doer of good works, a worrier, the kind of person who rescued small lost baby birds and cried when they died, which is the function kind old Mother Nature usually reserves for small lost baby birds. Doesn't sound like her she said. And she said she wanted to be more self-assertive, said Granny. Nothing wrong with being self-assertive, said Nanny. Self-asserting's what witching is all about. I never said there was anything wrong with it, said Granny. I told her there was nothing wrong with it. You can be as self-assertive as you like, I said, just so long as you do what you're told. Rub this on and it'll clear up in a week or two said old Mother Dismas. The other three witches watched her expectantly in case there was going to be anything else. It became clear that there wasn't. And she's running... What's she running, Githa? said Granny. Self-defence classes, said Nanny. But she's a witch, Gamma Brevis pointed out. I told her that, said Granny Weatherwax, who had walked nightly without fear in the bandit-haunted forests of the mountains all her life, in the certain knowledge that the darkness held nothing more terrible than she was. She said that wasn't the point. Wasn't the point, that's what she said. No one goes to them anyway, said Nanny Og. I thought she was going to get married to the king, said Gamma Brevis. Everyone did said Nanny, but you know, Magrat, she tends to be open to ideas. Now, she says, she refuses to be a sex object. They all thought about this. Finally, Gamma Brevis said slowly, in the manner of one surfacing from the depths of fascinated cogitation, but she's never been a sex object. I'm pleased to say I don't even know what a sex object is, said Granny Weatherwax firmly. I do said Nanny Og. They all looked at her. Our Shane brought one home from foreign parts once. They carried on looking at her. It was brown and fat and had beads on and a face and two holes for the string. This didn't seem to avert their gaze. Well, that's what he said it was, said Nanny. I think you're talking about a fertility idol, said Gamma Brevis helpfully. Granny shook her head. "'Doesn't sound much like Magrat to me,' she began. "'You can't tell me that's worth tuppence,' said old Mother Dismas, from whatever moment of time she was currently occupying. No one was ever quite sure which it was. It was an occupational hazard for those gifted with second sight. The human mind isn't really designed to be sent rocketing backwards and forwards along the great freeway of time, and can become, as it were, detached from its anchorage, seeing randomly into the past and the future, and only occasionally into the present. Old Mother Dismas was temporally unfocused. This meant that if you spoke to her in August, she was probably listening to you in March. It was best just to say something now, and hope she'd pick it up next time her mind was passing through. Granny waved her hands experimentally in front of old Mother Dismas's unseeing eyes. She's gone again, she said. Well, if Magrat can't take it on, there's Millie Hopgood from over Sliceway, said Gamma Brevis. She's a hard-working girl. 
mind you, she's got a worse squint than Magrat. Nothing wrong with that. The squint looks good on a witch, said Granny Weatherwax. But you have to know how to use it, said Nanny Og. Old Gertie Simmons used to have a squint, and she was always putting the evil influence on the end of her own nose. We can't have people thinking that if you upset a witch, she curses and mutters, and then her own nose drops off. They all stared at the fire again. I suppose Desiderata wouldn't have chosen her own successor, said Gamma Brevis. Can't go doing that, said Granny Weatherwax. That's not how we do things in these parts. Yes, but Desiderata didn't spend much time in these parts. It was the job. She was always going off to foreign parts. I can't be having with foreign parts said Granny Weatherwax. "'You've been to Unc Moorpork,' said Nanny, mildly. "'That's foreign.' "'No, it's not. It's just a long way off. That's not the same as foreign. Foreign's where they gabble at you in heathen lingo and eat foreign muck and worship, you know, objects,' said Granny Weatherwax, goodwill diplomat. "'Foreign can be quite close, too, if you're not careful.' Huh. She added witheringly, Yes, she could bring back just about anything from foreign parts. She brought me back a nice blue and white plate once, said Nanny Og. That's a point, said Gamma Brevis. Someone had better go and see to her cottage. She had quite a lot of good stuff there. It'd be dreadful to think of some thief getting in there and having a rummage. Can't imagine any thief would want to break into a witch's... Granny began and then stopped abruptly. Yes, she said meekly. Good idea. I'll see to it directly. No, no, I'll see to it, said Nanny Og, who'd also had time to work something out. It's right on my way home. No problem. No, no, you'll be wanting to get home early, said Granny. Don't you bother yourself, it'd be no trouble. Oh, it won't be any trouble at all, said Nanny. "'You don't want to go tiring yourself out at your age,' said Granny Weatherwax. They glared at one another. I, "'I really don't see that it matters,' said Gamma Brevis. "'You might as well go together, uh, rather than fight about it.' "'I'm a bit busy tomorrow,' said Granny. "'How about after lunch?' "'Right,' said Nanny Og. "'We'll meet at her cottage right after lunch.' We had one once, but the bit you unscrew fell off and got lost, said old Mother Dismas. Herker the poacher shoveled the last of the earth into the hole. He felt he ought to say a few words. Well, that's about it then, he said. She'd definitely been one of the better witches, he thought, as he wandered back to the cottage in the pre-dawn gloom. Some of the other ones, while, of course, being wonderful human beings, he added to himself hurriedly, as fine a bunch of women as you could ever hope to avoid, were just a bit overpowering. Mistress Hollow had been a listening kind of person. On the kitchen table was a long package, a small pile of coins, and an envelope. He opened the envelope, although it was not addressed to him. Inside was a smaller envelope and a note. The note said, I'm watching you, Albert Herker. 
Deliver the package and the envelope, and if you dare take a peek inside, something dreadful will happen to you. As a professional good fairy godmother, I ain't allowed to curse anyone, but I predict it would probably involve being bitten by an enraged wolf and your leg going green and runny and dropping off. Don't ask me how I know. Anyway, you can't because I'm dead. All the best, Desiderata. He picked up the package with his eyes shut. Light travels slowly in the Discworld's vast magical field, which means that time does too. As Nanny Og would put it, when it's tea time in January, it's Tuesday over here. In fact, it was dawn in January. Lilith sat in her tower, using a mirror, sending her own image out to scan the world. She was searching. Wherever there was a sparkle on a wave crest, wherever there was a sheet of ice, wherever there was a mirror or a reflection, then Lilith knew she could see out. You didn't need a magic mirror. Any mirror would do, if you knew how to use it. And Lilith, crackling with the power of a million images, knew that very well. There was just a nagging doubt. Presumably Desiderata would have got rid of it. Her sort were like that, conscientious. And presumably it would be to that stupid girl with the watery eyes who sometimes visited the cottage, the one with all the cheap jewellery and the bad taste in clothes. She looked just the type. But Lilith wanted to be sure. She hadn't got where she was today without being sure. In puddles and windows all over Lancre, the face of Lilith appeared momentarily and then moved on. And now it was dawn in Lancre. Autumn mists rolled through the forest. Granny Weatherwax pushed open the cottage door. It wasn't locked. The only visitor Desiderata had been expecting wasn't the sort to be put off by locks. She's had herself buried round the back, said a voice behind her. It was Nanny Og. Granny considered her next move. To point out that Nanny had deliberately come early so as to search the cottage by herself, then raised questions about Granny's own presence. She could undoubtedly answer them, given enough time. On the whole, it was probably best just to get on with things. Ah, she said, nodding. Uh, always very neat in her ways was Desiderata. Well, it was the job said Nanny Og, pushing past her and eyeing the room's contents speculatively. You've got to be able to keep track of things in a job like hers. By cure, that's a bloody enormous cat. It's a lion, said Granny Weatherwax, looking at the stuffed head over the fireplace. Must have hit the wall at a hell of a speed, whatever it was, said Nanny Og. Someone killed it, said Granny Weatherwax, surveying the room. Should think so said Nanny. If I'd seen something like that eating its way through the wall, I'd have hit it myself with a poker. There was, of course, no such thing as a typical witch's cottage, but if there was such a thing as a non-typical witch's cottage, then this was certainly it. Apart from various glassy-eyed animal heads, the walls were covered in bookshelves and watercolour pictures. There was a spear in the umbrella stand, Instead of the more usual earthenware and china on the dresser, there were foreign-looking brass pots and fine blue porcelain. There wasn't a dried herb anywhere in the place, but there were a great many books, most of them filled with Desiderata's small, neat handwriting. A whole table was covered with what were probably maps, meticulously drawn. Granny Weatherwax didn't like maps. She felt instinctively that they sold the landscape short. She certainly got about a bit said Nanny Og, picking up a carved ivory fan and flirting coquettishly. 
Nanny Og didn't know what a coquette was, although she could probably hazard a guess. Well, it was easy for her, said Granny, opening a few drawers. She ran her finger along the top of the mantelpiece and looked at them critically. She could have found time to go over the place with a duster, she said vaguely. I wouldn't go and die and leave my place in this state. I wonder where she left, um, you know, it, said Nanny, opening the door of the grandfather clock and peering inside. Shame on you, Gither Og, said Granny. We're not here to look for that. No, of course not. I was just, er, uh, wondering. Nanny Og tried to stand on tiptoe surreptitiously in order to see on top of the dresser. Gither for shame. Go and make us a cup of tea. Oh, all right. Nanny Og disappeared, muttering into the scullery. After a few seconds, there came the creaking of a pump handle. Granny Weatherwax sidled towards a chair and felt quickly under the cushion. There was a clatter from the next room. She straightened up hurriedly. I shouldn't think it'd be under the sink neither, she shouted. Nanny Og's reply was inaudible. Granny waited a moment and then crept rapidly over to the big chimney. She reached up and felt cautiously around. "'Looking for something, Esme?' said Nanny Og behind her. "'The <coughs> the soot up here is terrible,' said Granny, standing up quickly. "'Oh, terrible soot there is!' "'It's not up there, then?' said Nanny Og sweetly. "'Oh, don't know what you're talking about.' "'You don't have to pretend. "'Everyone knows she must have had one,' said Nanny Og. "'It goes with the job. "'It practically is the job.' "'Well... Maybe I just wanted to look at it, Granny admitted. Just hold it a while, not use it. You wouldn't catch me using one of those. I only ever saw it once or twice. There ain't many of them around these days. Nanny Og nodded. You can't get the wood, she said. You don't think she's been buried with it, do you? Shouldn't think so. I wouldn't want to be buried with it, thing like that. A bit of a responsibility. Anyway, it wouldn't stay buried. A thing like that wants to be used. It'd be rattling around your coffin the old time. You know the trouble they are. She relaxed a bit. I'll sort out the tea things, she said. You light the fire. She wandered back into the scullery. Granny Weatherwax reached along the mantelpiece for the matches and then realised that there wouldn't be any. Desiderata had always said she was much too busy not to use magic around the house. Even her laundry did itself. Granny disapproved of magic for domestic purposes, but she was annoyed. She also wanted her tea. She threw a couple of logs into the fireplace and glared at them until they burst into flame out of sheer embarrassment. It was then that her eye was caught by the shrouded mirror. Covering it over, she murmured. I didn't know old Desiderata was frightened of thunderstorms. She twitched aside the cloth. She stared. Very few people in the world had more self-control than Granny Weatherwax. It was as rigid as a bar of cast iron, and about as flexible. She smashed the mirror. Lilith sat bolt upright in her tower of mirrors. Her? The face was different, of course, older. It had been a long time, but eyes don't change, and witches always look at the eyes. Her! Magrat Garlic which was also standing in front of a mirror. In her case, it was totally unmagical. It was also still in one piece, but there had been one or two close calls. 
She frowned at her reflection and then consulted the small, cheaply wood-cut leaflet that had arrived the previous day. She mouthed a few words under her breath, straightened up, extended her hands in front of her, punched the air vigorously, and said, <clears throat> Magrat would be the first to admit that she had an open mind. It was as open as a field, as open as the sky. No mind could be more open without special surgical implements, and she was always waiting for something to fill it up. What it was currently filling up with was the search for inner peace and cosmic harmony and the true essence of being. When people say, an idea came to me, it isn't just a metaphor. Raw inspirations, tiny particles of self-contained thought, are sleeting through the cosmos all the time. They get drawn to heads like magrats in the same way that water runs into a hole in the desert. It was all due to her mother's lack of attention to spelling she speculated. A caring parent would have spelt Margaret correctly. And then she could have been a Peggy or a Maggie. Big, robust names, full of reliability. There wasn't much you could do with a Magrat. It sounded like something that lived in a hole in a riverbank and was always getting flooded out. She considered changing it, but knew in her secret heart that this would not work. Even if she became a Chloe or an Isabel on top, she'd still be a Magrat underneath. But it would be nice to try. It'd be nice not to be a magrat, even for a few hours. It's thoughts like this that start people on the road to finding themselves. And one of the earliest things Magrat had learned was that anyone finding themselves would be unwise to tell Granny Weatherwax, who thought that female emancipation was a woman's complaint that shouldn't be discussed in front of men. Nanny Og was more sympathetic, but had a tendency to come out with what Magrat thought of as double intenders. Although in Nanny Og's case, they were generally single entendres and proud of it. In short, Magrat had despaired of learning anything at all from her senior witches, and was casting her net further afield, much further afield. About as far afield as a field could be. It's a strange thing about determined seekers after wisdom, that no matter where they happen to be, they'll always seek that wisdom which is a long way off. Wisdom is one of the few things that looks bigger the further away it is. Hence, for example, the way of Mrs. Cosmopolite, very popular among young people who live in the hidden valleys above the snow line in the high ramtops. Disdaining the utterances of their own saffron-clad prayer-wheel-spinning elders, they occasionally travel all the way to Number 3 Querm Street in flat and foggy Ankh-Morpork to seek wisdom at the feet of Mrs Marietta Cosmopolite, a seamstress. No one knows the reason for this apart from the aforesaid attractiveness of distant wisdom, since they can't understand a word she says or, more usually, screams at them. Many a bald young monk returns to his high fastness to meditate on the strange mantra vouchsafed to him, such as, Push off you, and if I see one more of you little orange devils peering in at me, he'll feel the edge of my hand all right. And why are you buggers all coming round here staring at my feet? They have even developed a special branch of martial arts based on their experiences, where they shout incomprehensibly at one another and then hit their opponent with a broom. Currently, Magrat was finding herself through the path of the scorpion, which offered cosmic harmony, inner oneness, and the possibility of knocking an attacker's kidneys out through his ears. She'd sent off for it. There were problems. The author, Grandmaster Lobsang Dibbler, had an address in Ankh-Morpork, 
this did not seem like a likely seat of cosmic wisdom. Also, although he'd put in lots of stuff about the way not being used for aggression and only to be used for cosmic wisdom, uh, this was in quite small print between the enthusiastic drawings of people hitting one another with rice flails and going, Hi! Later on, you learned how to cut bricks in half with your hand and walk over red-hot coals and other cosmic things. Magrat thought that Ninja was a nice name for a girl. She squared up to herself in the mirror again. There was a knock at the door. Magrat went and opened it. Hi! she said. Herker the poacher took a step backwards. He was already rather shaken. An angry wolf had trailed him part of the way through the forest. Um, he said. He leaned forward, his shock changing to concern. Have you hurt your head, miss? She looked at him in incomprehension. Then realisation dawned. She reached up and took off the headband with the chrysanthemum pattern on it, without which it is almost impossible to properly seek cosmic wisdom by twisting an opponent's elbows through 360 degrees. No, she said. What do you want? Got a package for you, said Herker, presenting it. It was about two feet long and very thin. There's a note, said Herker, helpfully. He shuffled around as he unfolded it and tried to read it over her shoulder. It's private, said Magrat. Is it? said Herker, agreeably. Yes. I was told you'd give me a penny for delivering it, said the poacher. Magrat found one in her purse. Money forges the chains which bind the labouring classes, she warned, handing it over. Herker, who had never thought of himself as a labouring class in his life, but who was prepared to listen to almost any amount of gibberish in exchange for a penny, nodded innocently. "'And I hope your head gets better, miss,' he said. When Magrat was left alone in her kitchen come dojo, she unwrapped the parcel. It contained one slim white rod. She looked at the note again. It said, "'I never had time to train a replacement, so you'll have to do.' You must go to the city of Genua. I would have done this myself, only cannot, by reason of being dead. Ella Saturday must not marry the prince. P.S. This is important. She looked at her reflection in the mirror. She looked down at the note again. P.S. P.S. Tell those two old biddies they are not to come with you. They will only ruin everything. There was more. P.S. 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 It has tendency to reset to pumpkins, but you will get the hang of it in no time. Magrat looked at the mirror again, and then down at the wand. One minute life is simple, and then suddenly it stretches away full of complications. Oh, my, she said. I'm a fairy godmother. Granny Weatherwax was still standing staring at the crazily webbed fragments when Nanny Og ran in. Esme Weatherwax, what have you done? That's bad luck, that is. Esme? Ha! Ha! Are you all right? Granny Weatherwax screwed up her eyes for a moment and then shook her head as if trying to dislodge an unthinkable thought. What? You've gone all pale. Never seen you go all pale like that before. Granny slowly removed a fragment of glass from her hat. Well, uh, bit of a turn, the uh, the glass breaking like that, she mumbled. 
Nanny looked at Granny Weatherwax's hand. It was bleeding. Then she looked at Granny Weatherwax's face and decided that she'd never admit that she'd looked at Granny Weatherwax's hand. Could be a sign, she said, randomly selecting a safe topic. Once someone dies, you get that sort of thing. Pictures falling off walls, clocks stopping, great big wardrobes falling down the stairs, that sort of thing. I've never believed in that stuff. It... What do you mean, wardrobes falling down the stairs? said Granny. She was breathing deeply. If it wasn't well known that Granny Weatherwax was tough, anyone might have thought that she had just had the shock of her life and was practically desperate to take part in a bit of ordinary, everyday bickering. That's what happened after my great-aunt Sophie died, said Nanny Og. Three days and four hours and six minutes to the very minute after she died... Her wardrobe fell down the stairs. Our Darren and our Jason were trying to get it round the bend and it sort of slipped, just like that. Uncanny. Well, I wasn't going to leave it there for her, Agatha, was I? Only ever visited her mum on Ugg's watch day and it was me that nursed Sophie all the way through to the end. Granny let the familiar, soothing litany of Nanny Ogg's family feud wash over her as she groped for the teacups. The Oggs were what is known as an extended family. In fact, not only extended, but elongated, protracted and persistent. No normal sheet of paper could possibly trace their family tree, which in any case was more like a mangrove thicket. And every single branch had a low-key, chronic vendetta against every other branch, based on such well-established cause celebra as... What their Kevin said about our Stan at Cousin Di's wedding, and... Who got the silver cutlery that Auntie M promised our Doreen was to have after she died? I'd like to know, thank you very much, if you don't mind. Nanny Og, as undisputed matriarch, encouraged all sides indiscriminately. It was the nearest thing she had to a hobby. The Ogs contained, in just one family, enough feuds to keep an entire Ozark of normal hillbillies going for a century and sometimes this encouraged a foolish outsider to join in and perhaps make an uncomplimentary remark about one og to another og, whereupon every single og would turn on him, every part of the family closing up together like the parts of a well-oiled blue-steeled engine to deal instant merciless destruction to the interloper. Ramtop people believed that the og feud was a blessing. The thought of them turning their immense energy on the world in general was a terrible one, Fortunately, there was no one an Og would rather fight than another Og. It was family. Odd things, families, when you came to think of it. Esme, you all right? What? You've got them cops rattling like nobody's business, and tea all over the tray. Granny looked down blankly at the mess and rallied as best she could. Not my damn fault if the damn cups are too small, she muttered. The door opened. "'Morning, Magrat,' she added, without looking round. "'What are you doing here?' It was something about the way the hinges creaked. Magrat could even open a door apologetically. The younger witch sidled speechlessly into the room, face beetroot red, arms held behind her back. "'We'd just popped in to sort out Desideratus' things, as our duty to a sister witch,' said Granny loudly. "'And not to look for her magic wand,' said Nanny. Githa Og. Nanny looked momentarily guilty and then hung her head. Sorry, Esme. 
Magrat brought her arms around in front of her. Um, she said, and blushed further. You found it, said Nanny. Er, uh, no, said Magrat, not daring to look Granny in the eyes. Desiderata gave it to me. The silence crackled and hummed. She gave it to you, said Granny Weatherwax. Um, yeah. Nanny and Granny looked at one another. Well, said Nanny. She does know you, doesn't she? demanded Granny, turning back to Magrat. I used to come over here quite often to look at her books, Magrat confessed, and and she liked to cook foreign food, and no one else round here would eat it, so I'd come up to keep her company. Aha! Carrying favour, snapped Granny. But I never thought she'd leave me her wand, said Magrat. Really, I didn't. There's probably some mistake, said Nanny Og kindly. She probably wanted you to give it to one of us. That'll be it, right enough, said Granny. She knew you were good at running errands and so on, so let's have a look at it. She held out her hand. Magrat's knuckles tightened on the wand. She gave it me, she said in a tiny voice. Her mind was definitely wandering towards the end, said Granny. She gave it me. Fairy Godmotherin's a terrible responsibility, said Nanny. You've got to be resourceful and flexible and tactful and able to deal with complicated affairs of the art and stuff. Desiderata would have known that. Yes, but she gave it me. Magret Garlic, as senior witch, I command you to give me the wand, said Granny. They cause nothing but trouble. Hold on, hold on, said Nanny. That's going a bit far. No said Magrat. Anyway, you ain't senior witch, said Nanny. Old Mother Dismas is older than you. Shut up. Anyway, she's non-compost mental, said Granny. You can't order me. Witches are non-hierarchical, said Magrat. That is wanton behaviour, Magrat Garlic. No, it's not, said Nanny Og, trying to keep the peace. Wanton behaviour is where you go around without wearing any... She stopped. Both of the older witches watched a small piece of paper fall out of Magrat's sleeve and zigzag down to the floor. Granny darted forward and snatched it up. Aha! she said triumphantly. Let's see what Desiderata really said. Her lips moved as she read the note. Magrat tried to wind herself up tighter. A couple of muscles flickered on Granny's face. Then, calmly, she screwed up the note. Just as I thought she said. Desiderata says we are to give Magrat all the help we can, what with her being young and everything. Didn't she, Magrat? End of CD 1